You're listening to Everyday Emergency, a podcast from Doctors Without Borders. In the Eastern Congo, there's more rape, more abuse against women than anywhere else on the planet. Congo is like a nightmare in heaven. Over the past 20 years, over 5 million people have died in Congo from violence, hunger, and disease, making this the world's deadliest conflict since World War II. We're seeing things that actually question our humanity as a global society. For far, far too long, far too many lives in the Democratic Republic of the Congo have been ravaged by targeted, grotesque violence. Welcome to Everyday Emergency. I'm Nick Owen from Doctors Without Borders. So far on the podcast, we've heard from MSF medics in Sierra Leone and South Sudan, but this week we'll be hearing from someone a bit different. An old friend and colleague of ours, Sandra Smiley, used to work with us here in the UK as a press officer. But then in 2015, she up sticks to work as a field comms officer in Kinshasa, the capital of the Democratic Republic of Congo. From here on in, we'll be referring to it as the DRC, as Democratic Republic of Congo is a bit of a mouthful. It's Africa's second largest country after Algeria. It's a nation rich in natural resources, but it's plagued by conflict. Until recently, it's been at the center of what some observers call Africa's world war, resulting in widespread civilian suffering. Despite a peace deal in 2003, people in the east of the country remain in fear of continuing death, rape, or displacement by marauding militias in the army. As a communications officer, it was Sandra's job to travel the country, visiting MSF projects as she went. Part of her job involved working with local and international media to shine a light on underreported health crises in an attempt to get the world to listen. Hopefully this podcast will help do the same. I'll be chatting with Sandra in a moment, but first up, here's a story Sandra wrote about a young girl called Clementine brought into an MSF clinic fighting for her life. As usual, this is a true story, but the words are read by an actor, this time by Bryony Rice. Aside from the blips and pings of various monitors, the only sound is the little girl's laboured breathing. Though she's feverish and limp, You can still see distress in her eyes, her mother's eyes too, as she searches for the smallest change for the better, or for the worse, in her daughter's expressionless face. The two-year-old girl, Clementine, and her mother, Zamudia, arrived at the MSF-supported Bikinge Health Centre during the night. Though it's only nine in the morning, the air inside the emergency ward is already moist and hot, as the temporary walls of plastic sheeting trap the heat inside. She's been like this for four days, Zamudia says, without taking her eyes off the child. Given the situation she's in, I don't have the heart to ask her why she's waited so long to come here, but I can make a guess. In this part of the Congo, deep in the forests of Manima province, where some of the country's worst health indicators can be found, Healthcare facilities are few and far between. Even those that are easily accessible offer limited services, and for a price that few can afford. As such, people prefer to go to traditional healers or self-medicate at home. 
You can even buy pockets of blood at the roadside. Once Clementine's condition stabilises, the mood in the ward lightens somewhat. I chat with the medical staff as they administer painkillers, fill out patient cards, take vital signs and tidy. Working in the emergency room of Bikenge's only public health centre, there's not much that ruffles these guys' feathers. But they all seem a bit shaken up by this child and the fitful rising and falling of her chest. I ask them if they see this often. All the time, they tell me, nodding at each other in confirmation. Some weeks, 20% of the 400-odd patients walking through the door have a respiratory infection and a handful are serious enough to need hospitalisation. I think about the dust in the air, the trash everywhere, the hacking cough I woke up with this morning, and I'm not entirely surprised. The next day, I find Zamudia in the intensive care ward with Clementine, whose little lungs have somehow kept going through the night. Zamudia looks as if she hasn't slept. Clementine's condition is the same and she remains on oxygen and under constant supervision. She is still lethargic, clearly fighting to keep her heavy eyelids open. As I watch this scene quietly unfold, I take stock of how hard life is here, especially for Bikenge's kids. It's a sink or swim kind of affair and you're expected to get wet early. Children go to work at an age you can still count on your fingers, recruited by unscrupulous business people. Parents often turn a blind eye to this, as a child in a classroom is less remunerative than a child at the market or down a mine. As time goes on, and the strong antibiotics, painkillers and bed rest take effect, Clementine regains her strength. Soon she is exploring her unfamiliar surroundings with big, curious eyes, and a cautiousness I've rarely seen in a child of her age. At the risk of sounding paternalistic or maternalistic, as the case may be, I'm scared for Clementine. Being a girl growing up in Bikenge, the risks to her health and well-being are many. The malarial pits, the piles of stinking organic waste, the pimps and hustlers and other opportunists. I worry she'll end up back here with some other preventable illness. And I worry that when that happens, MSF will no longer be here to ensure our protocols and high standards of patient care are upheld. This is the Congo. Some health centres don't even have paracetamol. But on the other hand, I hope she doesn't allow those risks to dictate how she lives. I hope this timidity I'm seeing in her is just because of the Mzungu, Kiswahili for foreigner, wandering around with a big camera, the sunburn and the wheeze. She has just overcome an illness that could have easily proved fatal. I hope she has the strength to live her life fully and without fear, despite everything that may attempt to weaken her. Four days after they arrive, Clementine and Zamudia leave the Bikenge Health Centre to join their family at home. As evening approaches, they pack up their bags, say their goodbyes, and set off under a darkening blue sky. I wave to them as they go, but neither looks back. (laughs) 
Since writing that story in June 2015, Sandra's returned to her home in Canada and has made yet another interesting career move, but more on that later. I was joined by Fabio, our producer, and we spoke to her on Skype to find out how she was getting on. Sorry if the audio's a bit dodgy in places. Hey Sandra, Fabio here. Well, welcome to the podcast, Sandra. It's lovely to have you. Thank you for having me. So yeah, so far on the podcast, we've had um, we've had a doctor and we've had a nurse, but we've never had a a comms professional within MSF. Can you can you tell us a bit about what you were doing in Congo and and why that job is important? Sure. So. What I was doing in Congo was documenting the work that MSF was doing, so the frontline medical humanitarian work. I was making sure that the work that MSF was doing in Congo and the reasons for which we're working there are known by the general public. Um, So I was taking photographs, I was collecting people's stories, I was liaising with the media. Um, the foreign media and the local media to ensure that our messages, MSF's messages, were getting out there and people were aware of what was happening in the country. How did it feel, you know, moving from a a communications job in the UK to a communications job in the middle of the DRC? Um, In some ways, it was very similar. Um, In London, working in the press office, um, it can be quite relentless, but I guess the difference, the, the, the big difference was that in the UK you've always got people calling up, you've always got journalists and, and media calling up about the, the next big thing, the next big crisis, whereas in, in DRC it's a crisis that's been going on for so long that it's kind of dropped off people's radar and so you find that you, or at least I found, that I was having to work a little bit harder to get people interested in the in the huge number of, of interesting stories that there are to tell in Congo, and even the really, really sad ones. Was it a big adjustment moving from from London to to Kinshasa? Were you based in were you based in Kinshasa? Yes, yes. But I didn't spend all of my time in Kinshasa. A lot of the a lot of the time I was moving around uh, from different places or from place to place. And Congo is a, an absolutely vast country. So the question is a bit tricky to answer. How, what was it like moving from the UK to the Congo? Because Congo is like you know, three different countries in one. Um, depending on where you are, the language is different. Um, a lot of cultural elements are different. Um, it was definitely a transition. I think I have a bit of a special story. Um, given that um, I was a transplant in London anyway, uh, (laughs) as you can probably tell. Uh, I'm not from the UK, and so I was a a foreigner there, and again, I was a foreigner in the Congo, but um, I was obviously there for a different, much different reason. Um, In Congo, I was on a humanitarian mission. Um, So I'm not really, I mean, I'm not sure where I would start with that, with that question, to be completely honest. Um, but you you had you'd had quite a bit of experience going to the field before with MSF. I mean, obviously not for that that long a time. Was it still a shock? Just the the thought that you know you were you were there and you weren't coming back in a couple of weeks. You were there for a year. Do you know what? No, it wasn't really. I think I just kind of kind of rolled with it. And there's just so much to do that you don't really have much time to think about the fact that about your friends at home, about what you're you know what you're what what's going on in behind you you know where in the in the life that you've left behind um so 
Not really. I just kind of rolled with it. Is there anything you found particularly frustrating about working out there? Um, so uh, you, you can only control the news agenda to a, a certain degree. You can only, you can only try and, and, and crowbar those stories into the, the headlines, but there's no guarantee that you'll be able to do it. If it's a if if it's a if it's a big news day, then um, I don't know if Beyonce just put out another album or uh, something else of of relative consequence has happened. Then it's really difficult to get to get those things uh, the attention that they deserve. Reading your story, it didn't become completely clear as to why Clementine was in the hospital in the first place. Sure. So if I recall correctly definitely one of the top illnesses that people were coming into the emergency room with, especially children, were upper respiratory infections, um, like the one that Clementine had. And the reasons for that, um, for contracting an infection like that, are many. Uh, Oftentimes, um, very often, it has to do with very poor living conditions. Um, So exposure to the elements, you see it a lot in displaced people. Um, but obviously, these, these, this family was not displaced. They had been rooted in, in Bikenge for a while. But another contributing factor is just poor sanitation. And you definitely saw that in Bikenge. Um, there was trash everywhere. There was rubbish lining the, the roads, uh, organic waste everywhere, and also loads of dust. Uh, from because it's an artisanal mining area, you have lots of people, lots of amateur miners or, or small business, I suppose you could say, small holder miners going into the hills and and with their picks and 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 looking for uh, for ore for for diamonds for for precious stones. So those are all contributing factors, um, and the teams there do see um, did see a lot of, of, of respiratory infections of that nature. As to why it became so grave in her case was likely because uh, that was at the beginning of the project, that's when things were first starting up um, and not everybody knew about the presence of MSF, the fact that MSF was providing free um, free medical care to to everybody who was, um, who was, in, who was in the greatest need. Uh, and uh, that, I suppose the family just, just, just did what they had always done, which is wait for it to clear up, wait for the infection to clear up. Uh, because in previous MSF's arrival, the only alternatives were private healthcare centers, which weren't always open, uh, which weren't always staffed with qualified people, uh, which didn't always have the, the drugs that were necessary, and for which you had to pay. Uh, and that's simply something that a lot of families in that area and a lot of families in Congo uh, can't afford. Part of your role meant travelling all over the country. Are there any particular places that really stick with you? Everywhere you go in the Congo, you're going to find something very, very different. Um, and I guess I'll give you two examples just so that you've got a comparison. So in 
in in North Kivu, um, you have a very diverse, a very let's say healthy humanitarian sector. So you have a lot of humanitarian organizations who are based in, in Goma, in the capital of North Kivu. It's a it's a it's a hot spot for conflict. It's relatively accessible, and people know it. Despite the huge presence of of humanitarian organizations, there are still I mean, massive needs in these enclaves where where those humanitarian organizations don't go. That's that's something quite noteworthy. Do you know what I mean? Like you'll you'll be in Goma and you'll be in a traffic jam of nothing but humanitarian organizations' vehicles, so land cruisers with the the local the logos on the side. And then you'll you'll travel a couple of hours outside of the capital, and there will be people, children dying of malaria or, you know, a complete lack of sanitation. And then the other example that I'll give you is Kinshasa, actually. Kinshasa is a major metropolitan center, uh, and MSF there runs a a huge HIV project um, that is geared solely towards um, people who have very advanced stage HIV, or AIDS, I should say, and 25% of the people in those, in through the doors, die because they're in such a dire state of health. Um, the reasons for that are, are, are many. Um, a lack of access to healthcare, they don't get screened, the stigma is huge against, against the virus. Um, but it's just, it's a very poignant example of despite the fact that we're in the middle of this major metropolitan, African metropolitan center, there are still huge unmet needs. I once heard someone say that you could throw a dart at the map of Congo and you could very easily open up a humanitarian project wherever that dart lands because there's unmet needs everywhere. And the challenge for humanitarian organizations like MSF is deciding where to put your your scarce resources because no matter where you go, what you do is going to end up being a drop in a vast sea of deprivation of needs. So that's kind of the way I was, I see it. Fabio here. So when you're not working and you put aside all the humanitarian issues you have to deal with, um, what do you do during your downtime? Do you have much of a social life out there? In terms of the expat life, I didn't have much of one because there was there's simply so much going on. Um, there is just so much happening and I was traveling quite a lot. And you obviously have to be a bit careful and sort of have eyes in the back of your head and be, yeah, just be a bit reserved because you are a foreigner in a foreign land and it, it is the Congo. I have to say though, as a woman of, I'm 30 now, um, in certain places, I'm considered, you know, a woman of advanced age. And so I would get questions from women about my personal life. You know, do you have a boyfriend? Do you have children? Are you married? And inevitably, the answers to all those questions were no. And, you know, you sort of see that the horror, like, rise in their faces. That, oh, there's this poor, really nice lady who's not got any kids and not married and hasn't, you know, hasn't got, hasn't got a boyfriend. Like... And then they would sort of launch into this, yeah, they would sort of try to console me, like, oh, don't worry, don't worry, darling, it'll happen for you, uh, which is quite funny, considering that I, I still consider myself relatively young. But it also says something about life expectancy it as well. It definitely does, yeah. I've just pulled it up here, actually. The life expectancy uh, for, the, for the Congo is 44 years old. 44 years old. By those standards, 30, you know you're over middle age. Yeah. 
well over. Okay, Fabio, you need to stop. <laughs> and it also segues, it segues quite nicely into this question about what I'm doing now. Yeah, so I, I was just going to, yeah, to, to wrap it up, you've, since you got back from the Congo, you've, um, you've made quite an interesting career choice. Can you tell us about that? Um, so I'm currently redoing some science courses with a view to getting into medical school and training to become a doctor so that I can go out to the field with MSF, but in a slightly different capacity. What was it that, that made you want to do that, to you know, completely change paths? Do you know what? I'm afraid that my answer to that is no more complicated than seeing the immense need for skilled medical professionals in Congo and in places like the Congo. And as somebody who, who has those skills, healthcare professionals can have a massive impact that radiates outwards. It's seeing that day in and day out with my own two eyes and thinking, this is absolutely what I want to do. But also transferring those skills, training people, you know, helping people to uh, other people, local people, to evolve as professionals and provide top quality healthcare. Well, thank you so much. Oh, you're more than welcome. Thank you. Well, have a good day. Um, I will say hi to everybody for me, please. Yeah, I will do. All right, thanks, Sandra. Cheers, Sandra. Take care. Yeah. Bye. So that's it for this episode. If you have any questions about anything you've heard in this podcast, make your way to msf.org.uk slash podcast and leave us a comment. We've also posted pictures taken by Sandra in Congo with links to other stories written by her. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Get in touch with us on Twitter at msf underscore UK, on Instagram at Doctors Without Borders or on Facebook. Next time on Everyday Emergency... My favourite patient lies dying in my arms. I am not supposed to form emotional attachments to my patients or hold them passively and powerless while they die. We'll be hearing from Emily Wise, a British doctor from London who spent 2013 treating tuberculosis in Uzbekistan. Be sure to tune in. For more true stories from the front line of medical emergencies, subscribe via your podcast provider or visit msf.org.uk slash podcast.